welcome aboard the Knight 2000. Thank you. What's all this? Looks like Darth Vader's bathroom. And this is the first episode of Darth Vader's Bathroom, the Knight Rider podcast. As the Hoff himself says, see it, believe it, live it. We saw that the world needed another podcast that covered everything about Knight Rider. We believed it would be a lot of fun, and now we're living it. We just hope you all have as much fun listening to this podcast as we are having making it right now. And without further ado... Let me introduce today's co-host, Sir Jimmy. How you doing, Jimmy? Doing fantastic. It's nice to get this thing off the ground and steaming through the desert with a flashing red light in the front. That's right. We're going to hit the turbo boost today, my friend, because uh, joining us today is one of the world's foremost experts on everything Knight Rider. He is the author of the KR Companion, and he's from somewhere where I lost my wallet once, is uh, El Segundo. We have Nick Nugent. How you doing, Nick? Hey, nice to see everybody. How you doing? Well, welcome aboard the Night 2000, my friend, and uh, welcome to Darth Vader's Bathroom, the Night Rider podcast. Uh, just letting you guys know that we, uh, I had a hard time finding a, a podcast name that didn't clash with so many, I'll say some of them are great podcasts, some good podcasts, and some really crappy podcasts, so we really wanted to differentiate it. So I, I went with the first description that Michael Knight gives to Kit. When he sees the dashboard and he calls it, uh, what's all this? Looks like Darth Vader's bathroom. And uh, let me explain the episode numbering. Uh, you're listening uh, right now, folks, to Season 0, Episode 1, The Night Begins. And uh, the reason uh, we're doing that is because, uh, Nick, we want uh, people that really love the classic series to be able to go to our podcast and look for a Season 1, Episode 12 and find that it is Season 1, Episode 12 of this podcast. So they don't really have to think they can just go to Season 3, Episode 2, and they'll find it on our podcast. The idea is that we're going to eventually watch each show and go through it in detail. The post-production, the pre-production, the guests, yeah. all the screw-ups. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a few in uh, Season 1, Episode 1. That car, uh, I think that car transforms more in uh, Season 1, Episode 1 of Classic than it does in the 2008 series. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're going to go right into it. The Creation of Knight Rider. You guys ready? Sure. Let's do it. According to Brandon Tartikoff, the head of programming at NBC in the 1980s, the inspiration for Knight Rider came about when NBC executives started complaining about the problems that they're casting all these handsome dudes and dudettes in television series, and most of them couldn't act. So, so Tartikoff, Brandon, and his assistant, as a joke, made a proposal to, to NBC. The joke was they came up with a show called the man of six words. And here's the proposal. Each show would begin with the leading man getting out of a woman's bed and saying, thank you. Occasionally throughout the show, he would say, okay, when receiving orders from his boss. Then he would chase down some villains, do some stuff. He, he might at one point in the show yell, freeze. And finally, when the show was over, when he saved everyone, they would thank him. Oh, thank you, man of six words. And he would say, you're welcome. And for the rest of the show, a talking car 
would do the work and they would hire a good actor and pay them to do the voiceover for the talking car. This is a joke, but the NBC executives love the idea so much that they wanted to do a show about a man with a talking car. I tell you, the time this came out, talking cars were the thing. <laughs> and everybody wanted like a Dodge, like a, the Chrysler, the high-end Chrysler who would said door open. Either you fell in love with it or you hated it, but that was like the start for a lot of people of real technology whose VCRs are flashing 12 all the time. So I think it came along right at the right time. And these people grabbed a hold of the concept, absolutely, not the the story. Absolutely. And and Glenn Larson, who also produced uh, BJ and the bear, he had an episode of BJ and the bear. We had a talking like a police cruiser in it. And he Mm -hmm. even like told his, the guys that were working on the vehicle to, Hey, just watch this episode of BJ and the bear. And we'll, We'll get it in. We'll get it going. Larson also said, I wanted to do the Lone Ranger with a car. They got an okay from their network to, to put together a pilot. So he's whatever. These guys are idiots. They fell for this joke and they've approved this for pilot. So let's do it. Not all the network executives were enthusiastic about a talking car because of a show called My Mother the Car that was more of a hard comedy slant. And they had believed that a talking car show would never work on television. They could never make it connect with the audience because of the format of, of that particular show back in the day. No one would take it seriously. And Glenn was like, yeah, but I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do a modern telling of the Lone Ranger and we're going to do things right. And he did. Absolutely. Uh, after and, and- NBC saw his, which I'm sure you'll get into after he saw the promotional footage that he put together, that's when they said, wow, you really got something special here. Here's more money. Go make the rest of it. Yeah, and I think, Nick, that Larson's idea of making it the Lone Ranger, basically, which uh, meant that Michael Knight was the Lone Ranger, and the car kit was basically Tonto and the horse all put into one. And I think that's, whenever Knight Rider has had good ratings, that's what they were doing. Like, I'm going to talk about it so much this series, but the later seasons of Knight Rider, when they got canceled, it was like 500 people, a car, a truck, a whole organization, six guys, seven, 2008, they did it again. It's a whole team in the hangar. It only works when it's Michael Knight and a car. That's why he's a lone crusader. To be a lone crusader, you have to be alone to do your job. And that's what Knight Rider 08 didn't understand. Well, Knight Rider 08, you had... Michael Knight Jr. and the Mustang kit going out doing missions. And then you had all the team members popping up everywhere on the screen, giving various directives and and asking for reports and stuff. Whereas in the original series, it was just Michael and Kit on the road. And Devin's influence was limited to the uh, the video messages or the phone calls. And it was a tremendous amount of trust that Devin put in to Michael to do his job. The whole thing of them traveling from place to place, it's like the Doctor Who vibe where you don't know where next week's episode is going to be take place. It could be this place or that place. You don't know. It's going to be somewhere new. It's an adventure and it's a one guy in a car and it just, yeah, it didn't work for 2008. But I'll explain to the audience that this whole team behind the main character in his ear, on his phone, on a video screen, that's a Hollywood way of saving money in production because... Uh, let's take a, an example of the the series Flash, where he it's the Flash, right? It's just a guy running fast, but he's got mm-hmm. the same thing. He's got a a kit cave of his own. 
He's got all these people calling him in his ear, giving him directions because they can cut to the home base and the mm-hmm. home base will say, oh, uh, he's on his way to his place and then they can cut back. He's already at the new place. So they don't have to go out and film him going from place to place. They can cut back to another scene and cut back to the next place and they don't have to do establishing shots, nothing. So, oh, where's the flash? The flash is, he's at the bank now. Uh, uh, get to the bank right away and then they'll just show him at the bank. They don't have to. Sh- they, use, they use those characters a lot to set up exposition and explain what's going, literally right. explain what's going right. on. The other reason they do it is to make sure that the actors have something to do because they're on the payroll. They need to have a role to do something. And many times in television, especially the more higher-profile, popular actors, always want to have something to do. They don't want to be left out of an episode. So they have to create a role or a scene for them to be involved in the episode. Even if the episode, uh, the storyline itself doesn't really require it, they have to write this part in to keep them happy. I kind of think of Knight Rider as Kung Fu, where a guy is traveling alone. And he is solving problems on different levels. And think of Kit as God or the guiding force, the centralization of thought. Love it. But he also keeps Michael centered. Yes, the centralization of thought, exactly. That's right. It brings him back to the good. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to do an analysis of, of all the Knight Rider properties and, and see where they strayed from Glenn Larson's Lone Ranger and one-to-one compare that with the ratings because I, I think it's one-to-one where as soon as you have 15 people involved ratings go down if kit needs an oil change yeah bonnie did manage to fix that marvel of engineering with a giant wrench many times she never hooked up a laptop or anything she just had a giant wrench in her hand she could crank it <laughs> oh yeah and then they had april come in later and then bonnie return kit's a sophisticated vehicle and in in the pilot as as you guys will see and there was an entire team working on one car. Right. As it should be, because it's a, like you said, it's a very complicated vehicle. And yeah. and for those of you uninitiated, KIT stands for Knight Industries 2000. It's a creation of Wilton Knight. The actor who played Wilton Knight also did the original voiceover on the theme song, A Man Who Does Not Exist. A Richard Basehart. Yeah. And he's the fictional founder of the fictional Knight Foundation. But Nick... We almost had a travesty in naming because the car went by another name when the series was early in production. It wasn't Kit. It was Tat, mm-hmm. which yeah. stood for Trans M 2000. And can you mm-hmm. imagine? Tat, I need you. Oh, my God, the jokes people would have made. But the name would be scrapped because uh, it sounded dumb. Yeah, that too. But mostly because Pontiac turned down the Knight Rider deal. Their sales promotion manager at the time, Jim Graham, he didn't like the idea of Knight Rider. He thought it was silly and corny, and he told uh, Eric Dahlquist, the president of Pontiac's West Coast Public Relations Agency, that it reminded him, like you said, Nick, of My Mother the Car, (laughs) a stupid comedy flaw from the 60s. I think that didn't even reach a whole season, and it wasn't the image that Pontiac wanted. They were like, screw this. We got a little clip here from uh, My Mother the Car. Uh, We're going to (laughs) play. Let's take a look. Sure. Here's the theme song from My Mother the Car. My God, it's, it's so terrible. I, I just got to kill it right there. 
So the, yeah, the whole premise was that his mother died and now she's the car. My God, who approved that? It was a revolutionary idea because a lot of these zany ideas that seem cheesy to us today, you got to remember the time period in which they're created. Yeah, no, no doubt. So uh, obviously the production team had an issue because they didn't have much money to fund the pilot. And, you know, Pontiac was like, screw this. We're not giving you a car to make another My Mother the Car. And uh, so now basically they had uh, no cars and they were making a show about a car. Back to your Trans Am 2000 point. The reason it's called Trans Am 2000 is because when Glenn saw that car, he wanted that car. There was no other car in his mind. One of the producers, I can't remember his name offhand, made some comment about a Nissan car or something like that or dot i'm sorry dotson was supposed to be kit that's not true that's maybe that's what he wanted but glenn wanted the trans amp from the start oh nice he fell in love with that car he was like i want that car the time so, where it, it, it was the coolest car yeah well, the next closest was the mustang which wasn't and they were both in like a midst of the gas crisis where no car had any kind of horsepower but Pontiac, they took the lead with a car that just looked cool. I mean, my dad had a Trans Am. It was black, and nice. it was like 1986. So I got to know he was watching that. He never watched it with me, but I, he, he was influenced. So they have no cars. They want the, the Trans Am. They know they're going to need, well, at the time they were thinking, we're going to need five or six of them. And mm-hmm. they don't have it, and they're making a show about cars. But meanwhile... In the midst of all this, a handsome 30-year-old actor from Baltimore, Maryland, named David Hasselhoff, he portrayed Dr. Snapper Foster in the popular American soap opera, The Young and Restless. He ended his run with that show. He had a long run there. And he was looking to get his first uh, lead in a primetime series. And they pretty much locked him down. So they've got the main actors lined up. Now it's April 5th, five months before the show is going to air on television. And they still don't have any cars. <laughs> it might be time to consider something other than the Pontiac Trans Am. As you said, Nick, Glenn Larson really wanted that Trans Am. They, they could have gone to Ford and all the other companies and said, hey, we need a car. we got five months. But lucky for them, on April 16th, 1982, Eric Dahlquist, the president of Pontiac's West Coast Public Relations Agency, who was told by his boss that, no, we're not doing this, knowing who Glenn Larson was... And having faith in the project, he went around Jim Graham and called the KR production company, Vista Group, and said, be at the Pacific Motor Transport lot this afternoon at 4 p.m. There will be three black Transams there with the keys inside. Take them. They're yours. Click. And he hung up. It was Chuck Koch, uh, who was the vice president of Vista Group's client services at the time, said, it was all very cloak and dagger, very deep throat. We still don't know who made the call. Eric didn't recognize his voice, and the man never identified himself. <laughs> Can you imagine this? A like cloak and dagger stuff going on here. <laughs> so at 4 p.m., Dahlquist, Coke, and television supervising producer Harker Wade were in the lot as instructed. Three black transams rolled out of the plant right on cue. Coke said it was hard to believe them, and it's even hard to believe now. The PMT people just parked the cars and walked away. Not a word was spoken between anyone. That's how cloak and like spy versus spy this was. They didn't even look at us, he said. 
We got in the cars and we drove away. There was no paperwork. There was nothing. They dropped the cars off. The cars didn't really exist, just like Michael Knight. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. And they didn't care. They had their cars they needed. And eventually they get a fourth vehicle, which they made into a self-driving, or I'd say in air quotes, self-driving vehicle, which is basically a dude in a burka in the back seat driving. And they wouldn't make many modifications to the cars, did they, in, in the, for the pilot, did they, Nick? What do you mean by modifications? I know they put a, something over the dashboard, right, the, to give it all the lights. The external details were pretty, uh, except for the nose, the external details are pretty simplistic. It's, most of it was done to the interior, right? aside from the nose and the scanner, of course. So in the interior, they would put a, like a, a, an overlay on the dashboard, and yeah. they could move that from car to car if they had to. And it had a custom steering wheel. Cool steering wheel. Remember the steering wheel? Yeah, it's called a gullwing. <laughs> nice, the gullwing. Michael Fay calls it a steering yoke. It's on an aircraft. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, so yeah, that's why you know, it's a flight. It even had an airline sound inside the car whenever you were there. You had that. Yeah, it's a turbine engine. And, uh, and of course, the scanner is a nod to the trademark of the Cylons from uh, yep. Glenn Larson's Battlestar Galactica. Correct me if I'm wrong, Nick. You're the expert here. I'm just here to learn. <laughs> Two sure. of these cars were mod- modified just for jumps. I think this is the initial four or five vehicles they had. And they were given a lightweight fiberglass body, some quality shock absorbers, stripped interior, and a powerful engine. To, to weigh the car down when they jump so that the car wouldn't flip. Because any car is front heavy. Front engine car is heavy. If, if folks at home, do not try any of these stunts at home. Because if you jump yeah. your car off a ramp, right after it leaves the ramp... That engine is going down nose first, and you're basically going to smash. That engine is going to end up in your chest. It's not a good idea. If you try to jump a Volkswagen Beetle, you're going to you're going to end up with the car going you know back first. Leave it to the professionals. That's right. And of course, one of the cars was classified as the hero car, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the car you're going to see in the close-ups. Yep. And uh, it's the one that has the most detail. It's the one they probably polished the most. Kept, mm-hmm. kept in good condition. Covered it's the most screen time. Yeah. yeah. It's got all the the details. I think, Nick, in some of the stunts, they didn't even use like the same car, like the same type of car. They used like a, a Firebird or something. Because it was like, you know, from uh, a long distance. That they, they used other chassis, uh, especially for jumping. Most of them were Trans Ams, but they were modified. They had stand-in dashes and stunt wheels the blind drive car had, you know, two sets of controls. Other trick they used, uh, Jack Hill would sit behind the driver's seat and put on a costume actually as a seat and drive the car and make it look like it's driving itself. That's what, that's what I call the, the Burj Nikab. The guy's dressed as like a, as a seat, but it ends up looking more like he's dressed as a, some kind of priest from Star Wars or something. You got to understand back in the 80s, you could get a lot, get away with a lot of things. Nowadays, we see things in Blu-ray. It's like, oh, we can see this corner of the stage and we can see the hand holding the door from being closed. All the, the, the gags and goofs that people point out about the show. But back in those days, you had smaller screens. You could hide a lot more. Now with HD, you can't hide anything. Like well, everything. I, I don't think it's so much the HD part. It's the replayability nowadays, right? Jimmy, back then, if you didn't watch it, that was it. You had to watch the second episode next week. Well, yeah, internet. that was it. You couldn't like zoom in, take a screen capture nope. and all that. Nope. And it's back then, I kind of think we were talking in the pre-show about industrial light and magic. And I think the magic part is making do with what technology and technique you have at the time. 
So remember, Knight Rider, aside from kids' screens, didn't have any CG in it. It was all practical. All the driving scenes are practical. Yeah, the state of CG at the time, folks, so you're going to see if you're going to watch along with us, a rewatch, on the screens inside the, the kit car, sometimes you're going to see these wireframe, like green, cheesy graphics. That was the state of CGI in 1983. And that would take four days for them to render this rendering of this cheesy, kind of like, you know, Pong. I think the cheesiest thing that they did, looking back at like the opening credits now, the opening scenes, is when you can tell that the car is just being sped up almost like watching Babe Ruth round the bases and his legs look like they aren't running right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people nowadays can pick up on that. Yeah, but, you, you could almost, you know, some of those scenes you could play yakety sax. Definitely all the Super Pursuit modes scenes for sure. Oh, are for sure. Cheesy by today's standards with sped up footage. We, we have to understand with all the screw ups in the first one or two episodes and later in the series, but especially in my opinion, the first and the pilot, which I'll, I'll consider episode one and two, the pilot, there was a lot of screw-ups that they had no choice. They had to go ahead. Think about it, guys. Five, six months from concept to it's on NBC and millions of people are watching it. They had to go. They had to go. Perfect is the enemy of done. They had to get it done. And and at this point, they they would start the production with four cars, which officially, although they were handed off in this like a spy versus spy, Mission Impossible way, they were officially purchased for $1 each. Now, at the time, it cost $18,000 to convert one of those into a kit. So the production uh, team designed and built each car in two weeks, which is phenomenal. My God, I'm, I'm like five months in trying to build my studio here, and it's still got months of work to go. <laughs> and later... Yeah, I, done is better than perfect. I think back then, they did what they could, and if you could shave a piece of foam and paint it black and make it look good and... 320 by 240 whatever people were getting with their over their antennas they captivated the world with what they did absolutely L- or, later also on mind that um part of the series for the the network pitch reel the 20 minute uh promotional reel was shot with one car which had the john ward nose and then when they were approved to have a bigger budget to film the rest of the pilot they redesigned the nose that's why the nose changes Michael yeah. Jaffe was brought in who designed the original dash to redo the nose for the long haul. Cause the one that John Ward did had its strengths and its weaknesses, but ultimately the Jaffe nose is the one we ended up with seeing the most throughout the rest of the series. But as you're watching the pilot, you will be able, if you're looking close enough, you'll be able to see what the earlier scenes were and what the later scenes were. Just by the way the car changes, the license plate changes, uh, the buttons, the button labels and features change around. The other thing to keep in mind is when you see shots of the dash, that's not always physically in the car. There was this thing called the stage dash where they put the camera on close up for like when Michael would press buttons on the on the uh, podcast on the switch pods. Or if they showed the the readouts on the video monitors or whatever, that was actually a stage dash that sat on a stage that they would wheel around from one location to another. Yeah, and I noticed in the earlier episodes, there was a lot of close-ups of Michael where you don't see the dash. So the camera's Mm -hmm. kind of more facing at Michael, but he's driving, you can tell, and you don't Mm -hmm. even see the steering wheel because I'm guessing 
they maybe they didn't even have the first one ready and he was just like driving a stock trans am well they had another car called the buck car which was towed by a tow bar was half a car for some of the uh, some of the driving scenes and other scenes they would actually have a tow truck in front that had um a, a, the, t- the car had a tow bar in the front the trans am had a, a tow bar it was actually towed so that the car could be seen driving the background movie because again there's no cg there's no blue screen there's no green screen in these days right. where michael could act and the, and the co-star could act and not worry about actually driving the car Interesting. Very interesting. They had all these great little tricks to make the car uh, safe and to make it look like it drove itself. It was, it was revolutionary for those days. Back in those days, it, it was uh, it's quite special. Now, Nick, going back to when we said when you, you jump a car off a ramp, it's going to come mm-hmm. down nose first. There, there's going to be damage. Even oh, back then when, when they built cars like tanks, you know, they, they weren't all crumple zones and whatever. They would still cause a lot of damage. Uh, and I'm reading here that b- later on, between four to nine cars were destroyed every year during filming. And again, they were all purchased from GM for a dollar. They were purchased from uh, GM for a dollar because of a train wreck. Ooh. A train derailed, and I believe, I don't know the exact number of cars. My buddy Joe Huff from the Night Rider Historians. He'd be a great guest to have because he knows all about the car. I, I have I have a note on that. and we, We're going to get to that soon, Nick. I actually have all, the date yeah, here. Exactly. It saved Night Rider, I think, that train wreck. Sure it did, yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like a great opportunity to buy a bunch of half cars. That's right. <laughs> so, so they got the cars they needed to start. The, the scripts are written. Actors are lined up. The Hoff is there. And they got uh, less than five night months after they got their first Spy vs. Spy Cars, Knight Rider would premiere on NBC on September 26th, 1982. It would run for 84 episodes over four seasons and generate an obscene amount of money in, in merchandising. But first, more important, it needed a catchy theme song. So Glenn Larson turned to his favorite composer, Stu Phillips, who he had worked with many times before, including Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, BJ and the Bear, Fall Guy, and the Knight Rider opening theme song composed by Stu Phillips is one of the best I think the 80s had to offer. And I personally consider one of the most memorable TV theme songs of all time. Over the years, it's been sampled by all kinds of people. Busta Rhymes, Little Kim. But the song, as we will learn soon, we're going to talk to Stu, it owes its longevity to its status as a ringtone in the early 2000s. In 2005, Stu Phillips won an award from BMI for most downloaded ringtone of all time. And in fact, it is my ringtone. <laughs> Has been since 2005. Stu Phillips was born in 1929. Nick, we're going to have you and Stu on again sometime so we can all chat together. But uh, unfortunately, we already recorded the interview with Stu. He's, now, he's 91 years young. And uh, mm-hmm. Sir Jimmy and I had the opportunity to speak with him earlier about the Night Rider theme. So if you guys don't mind, we're going to take a listen to that right now, right after we play this classic 1983 NBC promo for Knight Rider. Knight Rider, a shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. You're in for murder, extortion, Knight, a young loner on a crew. 
crusade to champion the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, in the world of criminals who operate above the law. I'm not a cop. I'm your friend. I'm on your side. Michael, why do you need to socialize with so many women? I mean, what's wrong with the little companionship? Huh? I am the voice of Night Industry 2000's microprocessor kit, if you prefer. And Jimmy, Stu Phillips is here with us today, my friend. Hello, Stu. How are you? I'm fine, and I'm not really with you. I'm here in California, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Through the modern invention called the telephone, we're able to talk. How about that? It is a marvel, Stu. And not only that, but yeah. I, I'm in Toronto. And uh, Sir Jimmy, where are you at? I'm in North Carolina. We've got a little isosceles triangle going here, but our pinpoints. <laughs> Fantastic. Stu, i got to say, before we even start, that I, I, I've watched a lot of television. I'm a big music fan. I'm an audiophile I'm a podcaster. I, I do the whole thing. I've composed some music that no one sh- should ever hear. But I got to say that uh, Knight Rider has to be the epitome of um, TV themes. It's it just so perfect. <laughs> I, I Well, but to say thank you for your lovely comments. I mean, it's much appreciated. And I thank you. Continue, uh, please. It's <laughs> due. I mean, even today, it's difficult working with production houses and the timelines are crazy. But back in the 80s, when you know you had five months between the show concept and it airing on NBC, I can't imagine that you were given much time to come up with this theme, especially since they have to time the intro, the visuals to your theme. So I would imagine that you did not have much time to do this. All through the history of of film and TV composing, composers never really ever have as much time as they'd like to have. There are rarities occasionally, but most of the time you're always pushed to the the limit, mainly because the producer, director, whoever, they're more interested in everything else until they get to the very end, and then it's the music, and then everything is the music becomes the most important thing of the thing, and they say, well, we don't have any time. So <laughs> you sometimes wonder of just how important it is to them if they didn't leave any time. But it's always been a rush, okay? Even when there was time, somehow the producer would manage to make it so that there would be a rush. And in this case, uh, if I recall on Night Rider, we weren't against the wall, we had some time because the the original cut and everything was uh, libraried with some some kind of a German synth music that didn't had didn't match anything that had to do on the screen. It was just synthesized music, and the network was interested in the fact that since the car was uh, did you know the latest creation of man, that we should have synthesizers. Now, this was 1982, and there weren't a lot of synthesizers used as featured instruments up until that time. They'd always been kind of, aside from the the one they used in Spellbound and, and everything, the theremin, up until that time, basically, people used them occasionally in scores, but nobody ever featured them. And uh, this was going to be, to our knowledge, one of the first times that we were going to feature a theme featuring uh, synthesizers, synthesized uh, music. And uh, so, 
not being a real aficionado or great studier of of synthesizers, I you know called a few of my buddies and said, "Let's uh, give me a crash course on the phone here about synthesizers." I had used them before, but all I ever did was just write down synthesizer and write some notes down, and they did whatever they did, you know. But here was a case where I was going to create something, and and so I needed to have a little more knowledge. And they filled me in, and the only thing that I would do again was not use four synthesizer players. I would use one and have them overdubbed three times. <laughs> but, yeah, well, that's something you learn as you go along. I, I thought I was being brilliant and saying, you know what, and i got four parts here. I got four, I'll get four synthesizer players and do it. And to this day, I always felt like if I'd have gotten one and had him overdubbed, he'd had a better feel of what he, you know, was doing on this thing here i had four guys and everybody was like doing their thing you know all in all and it finally ended up okay it ended up fine you know but i think it probably would have been better the other way Stu, i, I gotta say it, it all gels together and hearing hearing from you that you actually had four players simultaneously doing the composition makes so much sense now i mean they, they, it, it all gelled together you didn't do it in four tracks you had four players yeah four players no overdubs there were no overdubs done on the entire thing to my knowledge oh, god i it's very possible that 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 uh, uh, that slide of the uh, synthesizers that might have been overdubbed but i really don't remember it's so long ago guys uh, i can't remember but basically it was live live on tape as we everybody played, and all we did that day was the theme, nothing else. Theme and the end credits and the bumpers and stuff. And and all, all I did with it was add a rhythm section and some percussion, and decided to forego any other you know instruments coming in, and just leave it at that. And all I can say is the producer was happy. The network was happy. Everybody was happy. That made me happy. <laughs> when producers are happy, networks are happy, then I'm happy. That's right. So I wrote down a couple of notes, and I thought maybe one of the reasons back then is that a synthesizer was so expensive. I don't know. There was a lack of memory. Were there no recording things? Did you use an 808 kick drum at any point? And I want to say mm -hmm. that I think it's just beautiful that it's for people making yeah, that no, piece of music yeah no no and also for your for your audience the uh the, the figure down all those eighth and sixteenth notes they were not they were not sequenced they were played wow they were physically played by uh i think uh, ralph gerson played it if i recall i think he was uh the one who played that but i had four Randy Kerber, Ralph Gerson, oh God, who else was on it? I think Mike, Mike Lang might have been. I can't remember the fourth one. I actually have a list of all the musicians from the session. You send me that list. <laughs> no, no, I can send you the list. Yeah, no. Uh, now, Stu, we don't blame you for me. I don't remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday, and you're you're remembering stuff that happened thirty, forty years <laughs> ago. Uh, you know, yeah. I applaud you. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can tell you, Emil Richards was on percussion. He played the vibes. I forget the drummer's name, but it wasn't my regular drummer. I had a 
I had another. In fact, that drummer, I think, ended up in prison. I think he killed his wife or something like that. I can't remember his name, (laughs) but it's on that list. But he wasn't my regular. My regular drummers were busy. Somebody that puts pieces of music together, would you say that just the fact that you have four people creating this piece of music, this masterpiece, Mm -hmm. playing together versus one person with a mouse cutting pieces together and making it sound perfect and methodical. I think that just takes like the love and the the beauty out of the piece of music. What do you think? Uh, I agree. No, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm, I'm, I'm always for, I'm always for live stuff. Even when I was in the record business and did recordings, I always insisted that the uh, a singer record live with the orchestra. And if for some reason we didn't, the singer or myself, or didn't think that this was as good as they could do, yeah, I would do overdubs. You know, do an overdub or give them the luxury or her the luxury of trying to to do a better track. But I always insisted that they do it. They sing live with the orchestra in the hopes that we would get good tracks like that. And I did a whole album with James Darren, and everything was done live with the orchestra with absolutely no overdubs of any kind. Everything just completely live. That was, I guess, 1962 or three. Like a Rat Pack, live at the Sands. Yeah, that was the way I treated it. Ten years in the record business and a, and a few uh, lucky uh, number one records and everything. And when I got uh, into the TV scoring and film scoring and everything, I always felt that I wanted as much as possible to have everything done live. I mean, if it turned out it was you know it was necessary to uh, overdub something or to do something like that, that's fine. When I got into Galactica and started to do all of those background synth things, you know, source music, then it became like, uh, what's the sense of going in with a gang of people here? And I personally, myself and Ian Underwood, would go in and we just, the two of us would just do stuff and overdub it. And, and, you know, we wouldn't mess around with trying to do all that stuff live. It wasn't worth the money. It wasn't worth the time. And that way there, I didn't have to write a lot. All I had to do was write a bass line and a theme, a melody, and we went from there, you know? No, no, see, you know, that sounds so 80s. Yeah, yeah, we do two at a time, you know. We do two at a time. He'd play one thing, I'd play something else. And then uh, he did all the difficult playing. I did the simple playing. <laughs> now, now Stu, one thing, one thing I wanted to ask you was, I, I yeah, know, I know so, that a, a lot of these episodes were being produced literally two weeks before they aired. So I'm guessing you didn't yeah. have more than two weeks to score. No, I'm not talking no. about the theme. I'm talking about the the incidental yeah. music. So you four, four days, yeah, four days, five days, five wow. days was a lot. Five wow. days was a lot. Four days was the usual, and it was always strange uh, scoring. You know, I would get cue sheets one at a time. Sometimes I get real two before I got real one. You know. Yeah. Depending upon what the music editor got delivered from the film editor, what the film editor was getting an okay from the producer, that okay, that that's a final go, send it off. And I get, oh, God, I'm in the middle of the show and I'm writing cues. But if I don't write something, then I'm going to be out of luck because I'm never <laughs> going to be able to wait until I get it in sequence. Right. I'll have one day then to do it, you know. You wouldn't get the whole episode in, in a row. You would get like a, a five-minute segment 
and they'd ask you to score. Well, that. I get it by reel. I get it by reels. In other words, uh, if there were the five reels or something in the in the episode, the film editor after he got his notes from the producer of what to cut or what to do or what to recut or what to do, he ne- didn't necessarily always go to reel one. You know, uh, he might go to reel four and he might finish off reel four. <laughs> right and say, okay, that's done, and he'd ship it over to the music editor and have it duped, and the music editor would then make the notes and then have him delivery boy or delivery guy or deliver him to my house. And I would, if I didn't start writing then, I would never make the deadline. Now, nowadays, it's a little different because uh, a lot of guys will wait because they have an army of, of people, you know, sitting around waiting to do all the work. Um, I'm not trying to criticize what, how they do it or what they do it, but that seems to be the style now. It's like, you know, I'm the composer and I've got five other guys who are also the composers, you know, and uh, deadlines, deadlines don't bother me because I'll just hire another five and we'll have 10 composers, you know, (laughs) and everybody will do a cue and and then that's it. Unfortunately, not unfortunately, but the way I worked was I had an assistant, period, who wrote basically no music, but occasionally when the especially on Galactica, when it, which was a big orchestra, occasionally do some orchestration for me. And we do orchestration when I would reuse uh, thematic music from another episode and recreate it for the episode I was in. I would be able to say, hey, take out the score from that thing there, and I want to do the same orchestration, and he would do that. So basically he was just, you know, kind of doing my bidding you know yeah no <laughs> but doubt. i didn't physically have to go sit down and write the notes out and that's how i did my tv career of uh, some 26 shows or something my goodness i you have quite the resume in television uh, my well, goodness. A, a, a lot of them ran all of two ep- uh, one episode you know <laughs> It's not like I'm uh, claiming every show was a long running. There was a whole bunch of. No, I, I understand. But I mean, no. like 30% of my childhood in the 70s and 80s, I, I was listening to your music during the shows. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Well, then you had to be listening to Galactica and, and Buck Rogers and and Knight Rider and Sheriff Lobo and BJ and the Bear and. Oh, BJ and, and the, the Hardy Boys, the Hardy Boys, and Nancy Screw, uh, Drew, excuse me. <laughs> and, I, I would um, watch Nancy Screw if you would score it. <laughs> if you would score it, I would watch it. I always used to, I always used to joke on that thing at the top of the page. I'd write the Horny Boys and Nancy Screw. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you had to do something to keep your sense of humor when they kept dumping the stuff on you in the last minute, you know. Yeah, and we need it in three days there, Stu. We need it in three days. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's not bad. That's okay. I'll give you. I'll do it in the three days, but when you're on the scoring stage and the guy comes down and says, oh, by the way, they just recut reel two. Oh, and, <laughs> and do it all uh, over again. And this cue is out, and this cue is longer, <laughs> and everything else, yeah. and you have to go rewrite it while you're standing on the stage, you know. <laughs> Hey, Stu, uh, let me ask you, do you think that, like, like with Knight Rider, me and Paul are kind of amazed that you managed to come up with this in five months, and it sounds like you've been thrown a lot of jobs that are much more intense than that, like short-term couple days. Would you say that having, like, a, a deadline 
to get something done? Well, first done? of all, is, I, the is five months on night, yeah, the five months on night rider was not really five months for me. I mean, it might have been five months in development and all of that stuff, but I didn't get involved in the thing until they had actually shot the movie and made a first cut that to show to the network. So that was basically when I got involved in it, and that was much less than five months, you know. Okay, more, so this was like more a, like just, probably four weeks. Pilot. Yeah, was this yeah, the more pilot? Than, yeah, that would be the pilot. So you did a bunch of pilots, like he was saying earlier, you know, that you did a bunch of stuff for stuff that's like one show or two shows. So like, yeah, like things that I, like Benny and Bonnie, and which I think ran on I don't know couple episodes then there was one with the smothers brothers i yeah. don't remember the, i don't remember the lot. name of it yeah that ran about six episodes before it got dumped uh <laughs> and uh, i can't even remember some of them they were really I, there was one series i did at fox that was ran a whole season called masquerade which was uh, actually a pretty wasn't a bad show with greg evigan and christy what's the name from cheers Christy. Christy Alley. Christy Alley. Yeah, Christy Alley. I'm sorry. When she was really thin and and beautiful and Well now, and, now uh, she's big and beautiful. Yeah, now <laughs> she's big and beautiful. I have to ask you, because I did some research and, and I know that you're a classical composer by, by trade. The question is what what inspired you to bring back an old opera? For a, for a night What do you mean? Uh, I didn't, that wasn't inspired. That wasn't purposely done. That wasn't, uh, not, I, I had no idea what I was playing. Okay. I had come up with the running 16th figure dun, 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 and the bass line. Wow. And I played that for Glenn. He says, how you doing on a theme? And I said, well, here's what I got, you know, and he says, great. He says, you, you had the dun 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 Yeah, and I had the bass line and I had a bump and I had the little little guitar riff that goes before the theme comes in. All of that I had was all done. I played it for Glenn and he said, great, where's the tune? And I said, oh, you want a tune on top of this? He said, yeah. So not being the greatest uh, pianist, not in John Williams' uh, class as a pianist, <laughs> it was difficult for me to play that running 16th figure with the left hand and try to find something else. And so I played the simplest thing that came to my mind, you know. Having no knowledge, believe me, I had not heard that piece of music probably for 40 years, you know, <laughs> that particular piece. And, what are you going to do about something that's an earworm? I mean, it just sticks. Well, I, I just I, I played that and got all done. And then when I started to put it down on paper and started to go over in my mind, I said, God, that sounds familiar. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it not sounds familiar. So I said, I, I wonder why. And a lot of times when things sounded familiar to me, when I researched it, it discovered it was something I wrote previously. You know, and I said, "Oh, great!" And this, case, you know, so I went. There's a there's a book out there. There is still a book that has classical music themes in it, and you can kind of like find it by putting in the first few notes. So I put in the first few notes of of this thing and came up and said, "Oh my God, that's exactly like that!" You know, <laughs> opera. 
And so I've told Glenn, I said, you know, Glenn, that that melody we have, I said, that's actually from, you know, an old opera. He said, well, is it PD? I said, oh, yeah. That's all that matters, yeah. Yeah, he Public says, oh, who cares? He says, how many people are going to know, know that thing there? I said, well, I don't know. I, I know, though. It kind of bothers me. He says, well, forget about it. Yeah, I'm happy. The network's happy. Everybody, if everybody's happy, I'm happy. Let's drop it. And so we dropped it. But who knew that a lot of aficionados of TV music themes were also people who knew old, very rarely done operas yeah. you know, suddenly at an interview one day somebody said to me uh, what gave you the idea just like you just did to use that theme i said nothing gave me the idea it was i mean it was just the easiest thing for me to play with my right hand while i was trying to manipulate the notes in the left hand there <laughs> it's a great melody it's my only gripe with the uh, 2008 reboot of the series was they did use your dun 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 but when I did not hear that that theme, uh, the melody, I said, "Oh man, you know what? You know what? I'm not watching this show anymore." <laughs> yeah, well, that show was a piece of crap. Fought by English, <laughs> whatever that French. That's a crap, French for crap. Yeah. <laughs> and the sad story about that is that when I knew they were doing that thing, I. I contacted the music department at Universal, and I said, listen, people, I'm not looking for the job. I don't want to go to work on the show. I'm through with that. I said, but for God's sakes, I said, I can't tell you how, uh, all over the world this theme is very well known. You'd be remiss for not using it. And I said, I understand that that it may be sound a little dated. I said, I have several arrangements that people have done that are on YouTube that I can send you that are really great. And I said, I admire what they did with it. They, you know, did some nice things. So I sent it to the music. I went through the thing and then the head of the music there said to me, well, I really don't have anything to do with that show. Oh, so man. how can the head of the music at Universal have nothing to do with it? Give me the names of the producers and I'll get in touch. So I got in touch with them and they were wonderful people. They never answered me. I tried again, never answered me. So I figured like the hell with them. And then they came up and they hired this guy and and he just took four bars and butchered the hell and, out uh, of it. Yeah, butchered was the word I was going to use. Butcher, Stu. When I was watching that, and I heard dun 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 I was like, oh my god, they're gonna use Stu Phillips theme. This is great. And all of a sudden I went Yeah, I went to some and and I was like, Oh my god, this is terrible. That's terrible. They didn't want the best part of they didn't want to talk to me and obviously the music Harry Garfield thing was the young Harry Garfield, I think. I, he obviously contacted them and said, listen, I heard from Stu Phillips, and he said, like, you know, really this theme is just so popular, and he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want the job. He's not looking to get, you know, the work or anything else, but he just thinks for your sake this theme should be there. And he sent me some modern versions of it, up-to-date 2008 
arrangements of it. And evidently they said, well, we're not interested, you know. We got our composer. Yeah, and we got interested. it. And, and screw you guys. And you know what, Stu? Uh, we, uh, yeah, actually, right. on, on our YouTube channel, which is still StarshipElves.com, our YouTube channel, I put up a, a video that compared that, mm, we're going to call it butchered theme song, to uh, yeah. Nirvana uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, because there's one, one segment there where it goes... Which is right out of uh, Nirvana's uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Put up a video that compared that theme, the butchered theme, with uh, yeah. Nirvana theme spirit. And it had 250,000 views. Uh, as soon as it hit about 260,000 views, NBC pulled it down due to copyright notice because they didn't yeah. want me talking about it. But it, it was a butcher job. And yeah, had they used even the original theme that you composed, I think they might have made it to season two. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Never, never know. My favorite part of I'm sorry, I've just been listening and soaking all this up. This is like stuff I would have killed to have in a comic book back in the 80s. Every every yeah. word out of your mouth, Stu. <laughs> so oh, wow. what, my, my question is, well, it's not a question, I guess, observation. When it goes like, dun, 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 and then it goes, dun, dun, and it goes, it sounds like it, it in, in like a little eight-year-old child, and I think in a, like a 70-year-old man who was watching your show, those are the people that recognized the stuff from the old opera it has. That is, that's just well, what I did was, well, I tightened the theme is what I did. The original, on the first time the theme comes to, uh, comes to light, it's uh, bum ba da bum ba da bum ba da bum bum right? Later on, after the uh, middle part, when it comes back, as you said, it goes bum ba da dum, bum ba da dum, bum ba da dum, bum bum. In other words, it's half the half the uh, half the uh, speed of the first one. Oh, that was purposely done to to increase the action of the piece without doing anything different. You know, I just simply took it and compressed it, compressed four bars into two bars. You know. I, we could talk about this for days, Stu. I love that theme. It is, mm-hmm. uh, to me, it is the epitome. It's the the king of the hill. It's the top of the pyramid. TV theme song that even people that don't like the show, never watch the show, they all know it. I appreciate all of your comments and everything else, but to be perfectly honest, there's a few other TV themes that, that Mission Impossible and uh, a few others that are, you know, definitely... Uh, Spot on, you know. But not for uh, someone who's fifty years old and under like us. Oh, you know, Peter Gunn. <laughs> you, Mission you, this Impossible. is your target demographic. Oh, great. Okay, <laughs> I got it. Maybe I'll get. Maybe I'll get hired. <laughs> By the way, Stu, the show you're on right now is called Darth Vader's Bathroom. The Night yeah, Rider I saw podcast. that and I said, wait, wait a minute, they got a little confused here. I got nothing to do with that, with, with Darth Vader. I realized you had a colon there and I said, oh, that seems to be the name of the show. Well, we, we decided like to go. Who uh, understands the significance of a colon. Right. The colon is uh, yeah. important. <laughs> well, once you get over 40, Jimmy, the colon is very important, my friend. You better believe it. Well, where do you Amen. get the 90? 
Where did you get to 90? <laughs> so, so, Stu, the whole thing is... We're off topic here. We're getting off topic. <laughs> just Let's a little go, bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> but uh, Knight Rider, the, the theme was important to me. I was a child of the, you know, the 70s, 80s. And dad controlled the TV. And the, in most houses back then, there was one TV. So when dad put Knight Rider on, I was like, oh, that, that's good. I'll watch it. You know, we didn't have uh, TVs in our pockets like the kids nowadays, right? Yeah, right. And when that theme song came on, it was like, oh, I was hypnotized. I was 11 years old watching the theme come on live. I was, this is, must be a great show. This this song is great. I, I want and to watch this. When that song came on, no matter what was happening in the house, somebody heard a little piece of it, just a couple seconds, one second, and boom, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, yeah, I, I was di back. diving for... For the VCR control in our house was wired. So I could just mm -hmm. grab any part of the wire and say, Dad, you are not changing this channel. You are staying on NBC because this song is great. This car is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how it goes. Sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. <laughs> now, Stu, I got to ask dad you. I had um... a black Trans Am that looked an awful lot like Kit when I was a kid. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I kind of, I totally. Just put that on at your feet right there. Yeah. There's so many there's copies of that car all over the world. I done a oh, few no conventions doubt. and uh yeah, I did one in Birmingham, England and then the guy guy had a beautiful, beautiful car. Drivable and everything, you know. Just Hello Deutschland, here's the Hoff. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did uh, another convention in Dusseldorf. Uh, Oh, wow, Dusseldorf. Yeah, well, it was in the it was in actually the the Warner Brothers version of Universal, you know, Park. Right. And Warner Brothers had one in out not in Dusseldorf, outside of Dusseldorf. I can't remember name of the place. And they did a whole. We did the Knight Rider fan club of Germany did a uh, whole Knight Rider thing at at the park, and it was quite nice. And uh, speaking of Dusseldorf, have you ever met David Hasselhoff? I, I, he was standing outside the stage one day when I was going on the stage and I, you know, obviously recognized him. He was standing there alone, obviously taking an air break or just taking a break from the stage. And, and I just went and I said, hi, hi Dave, I'm Stu Phillips, the composer. And he went, hi. And that was it. <laughs> I never, never, ever met david or had anything to do with him did uh, he smell terrific did he smell i don't know <laughs> did he smell terrific i imagine that he did yeah. smell terrific so you know he just said hi and that's it and, and i never had the opportunity or any ever again to ever see him or or do anything uh, with him however when he was in i think australia yeah he did an album of David Hasselhoff singing, and at the end of the album, he had the arranger who did the arrangements do an arrangement of Night Rider with a symphony orchestra style, uh, and it's really, really great. David Hasselhoff's uh, album, the one that's like patriotic. God, I can't think of it. 
but it's, I, I don't think he made the other albums. But uh, if you look up the David Hasselhoff uh, sings or something like that, the last track in that thing is Night Rider, and the Ranger did a really, really great semi-symphonic uh, arrangement of it. Kind of really good. I like to comment people when they do nice things. <laughs> Hasselhoff is big in Germany. Yeah, he's a big, big number one, number one man in in Germany and uh, France. I think pretty good in France. England loves Knight Rider. I know that. Uh, Quick questions, Stu. Uh, Glenn Larson, who who gave you a lot of work, I'm sure, in the seventies and eighties. And I'm I worked sure, for him for fourteen years. There you go. Uh, okay. Quick question, because he's listed as a, a co-composer for the Knight Rider theme. Did, did he have uh -huh. any input other than do this, do that? No. Okay, so uh, his name was just okay. slapped on you, there. You've heard the you've heard you've heard the story about in order to, the in the early days of the movies the you had the couch audition, which was called you had to. Have have sexual sexual things with the producer or the director or the <laughs> studio head to get a part in the picture. Yeah, well, that was my thing on the couch. Okay, was that uh, Glenn? Glenn always, you know, if if Glenn said, "Oh, I I like it better if the, if you take that note and go down with it instead of up." Okay, right. not a problem. Yeah, I'll do that. That made Glenn the co-composer. Okay, so okay, what can I tell you? His name is on Galactica. His name is on Knight Rider. His name is on Switch. His name is on Party Boys. And well, the Buck Rogers, I did not write the song. He wrote that. He wrote that himself, or with somebody else. I don't know, but not with me. Uh, I had nothing to do with the song. I think it's called Suspension. Right. Um, yeah, with Buck Rogers' song that completely... What happened was, uh, when I wrote the score, I'm a composer who likes to use the theme of the show in in the scoring of the show. In other words, when appropriate, I like to bring up the main theme. I feel that it uh, the audience gets a uh, sense of recognition. You know, it, it kind of pulls things together. So I'm one of those people. And I'll even use the theme of the show if I didn't write it. You know, if somebody else wrote it, I don't care. Even though I don't, you know, make any money on it, it works for the score, and that's my job. Is my job is to is present a score that works, regardless of where it came from, what happens. And in in particular cases, you know, like with 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 Glenn, a suggestion would become a co-composer. And the first time he did it, which was the first show I ever did for him, called Switch. Are they just just trying to get a piece of the pie at that point? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, well, that is right. But with Glenn, it was a matter of his. He was played guitar, and he was a singer in a group. You know, the four uh, four preps, and he wasn't musical aside from that. You know, we didn't right. read music or anything else. He just played. But he had this sense of what what he wanted to hear and everything else. And he went when when he was doing McLeod, he went through composers like crazy because, you know, they didn't want to pay attention to him. You know, like you're hired, I'm hired by the studio, and I'll do, I'll write what I want. You know, and that upset him. 
And when he went to do the pilot for the $6 million man in 1974, which is where I got back with Glenn, believe it or not, I don't know if the story interests you, but that was 10 years after I was Glenn's producer. Wow. Okay? When he was a member of the Four Preps singing group on Capitol Records, I was an A&R man at Capitol Records, and the first assignment that I was given was to do a session with the four preps because their contract was up and they had a, uh, they had a, uh, they owed capital a session. And so I produced a session with the four preps of which Glenn Lawson was one of them. And so I was his producer. <laughs> and then 10 yeah. years later, I get a phone call from his office. Do I, I'm, am I interested in doing a TV pilot? And uh, yeah, <laughs> I had not spoken to the man in 10 years. Wow. Because after, yeah, after the record that we made, which actually the record that we made became an almost instant hit, but was taken off the air by Capitol Records because the Beatles, it was a song that had to do with the Beatles. Oh. And uh, the, Beatle, uh, the Beatles lawyer felt it was um, uh, an insult to the Beatles, the, the way the lyric was given. And they said the Capitol who, of course, was distributing the Beatles here in the United States, said, you got a choice. You want the Beatles or the four preps, you know? And so Capitol said, we'll take the Beatles, you know? And so they <laughs> said, well, get this record off the air, you know? And so they did. And that was the last. And that, so Glenn Lawson, I think, sued Capitol Records or something. Uh, at one time, I read about that. But that was the last I saw of Glenn Lawson for 10 years until his office called me up. And the reason they called is because... He he was so sick of all the composers that he was using on on the name of the game, not name of the game. It takes a thief, and also McLeod, that he wanted somebody new. So he asked the music editor, "Do you know any composers?" And he said, "Oh, I just did a thing with Stu Phillips." He said, "Over at 20th Century Fox." He says, "He's really good composer." He says, "Stu Phillips, I know him. You know, he says, I think I know him from Capitol Records." He says, "Yeah, that's the guy." So he said, oh, great. He says, okay. So they looked me up or something and called me. And I went in and met with Glenn. And he said, he's got this pilot called The Six Million Dollar Man, which, of course, was the third version of the pilot. They'd done two other ones with Gil Millay and, and somebody else. And so we did the pilot, and Glenn sold it. And the network bought it and picked it up. And Glenn never did an episode of the show, which I don't know why. And I, here I was, I said, oh, my God, I'm going to have a, you know, great hit show. This thing's going to be a smash. And, and oh, Glenn says, well, I'm not doing the show. Oh, man. <laughs> I had, to this day, I have no reason whether Universal didn't want to do the show or he didn't want to do the show. But he said, listen, I feel bad about it, Still, You work so hard on this. So he says, how about you do some McLeod's? He says, I don't have a regular composer on that. He says, and I hate most of the guys I'm using that they give me. So he says, I'm going to give you that show. I said, well, fine, great. So I, that's how I kind of started in with Glenn doing McLeod. And then, and then we he got switch and then went onward and onward and onward. And, but it was always his feeling that he, he, he earnestly felt he contributed by saying things to me, you know. Right. Right. But basically knew that there was a lot of money in 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 having fifty percent of the you know of the BMI money, 
And then when we got to Fox, he actually got 50% of the publishing from Fox. So he was not only sticking his name on it, he was getting 50% of the publishing. You know, hey, it's the way the business goes. It's called it's called making a living. It's called living in show business, yeah, which, no unfortunately, which unfortunately, which yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the people in this industry in the last 10 years don't understand. They don't understand what show business is. They don't understand what doing working in this business is like. They I mean, show I hear, friends that show business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear composers say things, and I'm saying, what, what are you, crazy? I said, back in 1939, Max Steiner had the same problem, you know? You're going to cry now about your this or that, or you didn't get the, you know, like, discover the fact that your industry didn't start the day that you got into it, you know? Right. It's been here a long time. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I'm I'm, e I'm emoting. <laughs> no, emote away. Emote away, uh, Stu. Now, about 10 yeah. years after Knight Rider, you know, came and gone. Yeah. You got an award for, and I'm just going to do a little demonstration here. And I'm not, not bullcrapping you. I'm going to bring my phone up to the uh, microphone here. Give me a second. And I'm going to. Play my my ringtone that I've had for about fifteen years. Might might sound familiar. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and uh, I'm told that I I'm not the most original guy. That many people have had this ringtone on their phone since like the '90s when they had like uh, flip phones and Motorola. You know the big phones yeah. that were the size of a brick. Uh, I I'm told that it was quite popular. <laughs> Yeah, well, it uh, when, when ringtone suddenly became the big thing, BMI decided to have a category and gave out an award for the most ringtones, and I had a million things, and so did Lalo Schiffer and have a million. So we, okay. we both, I got, I'm looking at a picture on the wall of my office right now of Lalo Schiffer and myself both getting an award he for Mission Impossible, obviously, and and me for Night Rider from BMI for uh, more than a million re requests or whatever you uh, downloads or whatever of of the themes. So yes, I think it was more than ten years though after. Yeah, uh, the well, it might have be been like ninety five, ninety six. Yeah, ten years yeah. was ninety two, and then and it was it was after that. I'm sure it was in the two thousands. Early, very early. Uh, one uh, wonderful theme song. I, I think one of the most classic. I, I got to tell you, Stu, in the 90s, late 90s, uh, or you know, mid-90s, I graduated high school in the high school dance. And yeah. th your theme, or an extended version, was still being danced to. You're kidding. Un 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 yes, uh, unironically. <laughs> The, the DJs would spin up a record, you know, remember the L LPs, yeah. a long playing record. They would bring out a, a, a remix. And this is before the internet and all that. And and these, these DJs had records of the Knight Rider theme. And, and we were bopping to it. And we, and we were dancing to it. This is, I'm talking about like 93. We were dancing well, to it. About, that's the first for me. I never heard anybody dancing to it. Oh, my Lord, yes. And I mean, there, there's yeah. been recent remixes with like, Indian DJs, you know, re remixing it and whatever, and I'm sure. Oh God, yeah. yeah. Oh God, uh, I, I've I've made more money. I've made more money on the rap artists and hip hop artists using it 
on their record, sampling it on their records, and they probably did <laughs> writing the whole thing and doing the whole series. I, uh, I, can, I can still dance to it today, my friend. I can still dance yeah, to it. it. It's a classic. I, I honestly, if if you're making, if you are a producer right now listening, if you are the producer for the new Knight Rider movie that's in production right now, if you do not use Stu Phillips' theme, I'm going to yeah. change the channel. Just like I did in 2008. <laughs> I'm going to change the channel. <laughs> yeah, the producer of that thing is uh, kind of a big man right now because he's had a little success and a few projects. So I, I'm not sure I want to try well, to contact him and say, well, hey. you know, but, you know, I'll, I'll tell him right now, if you're going to yeah, do the same what, thing I, that I, they did name, um, in 2008, if, if you're not going to use the Stu Phillips theme or at least a yeah. very close iteration, then uh, yeah. it's going to be just like 2008. We're going to tune out. Yeah. Well, it depends on who they, depends on who they hire to do, uh, do the score. I, I hope they hire Mr. Stu Phillips. You know, huh? Yeah. I, I, it sounds like you still have some gas in the tank, my friend. Oh, I got gas in the tank, but you know what? <laughs> I don't think I want to work their style anymore. Now, the, yeah, they, the, their, their style now is they want to hear every note you write right. uh, every day, and you got to sample it, and you got to uh, make mock-ups up, and they have to hear. I never made a mock-up up my whole life in, in TV. Never made a mock-up. I, I just uh, hope the new, I, the I, new movie does use an iteration of your theme, because yeah. it is a timeless well, I would, It would be nice. I would love it. I think it would be great. I think it belongs, not because of me or what I might make or anything like that. I just think the, the Knight Rider name and the Knight Rider theme belong together. And, Damn. you know, it's... Yeah, it depends on who they on who they get to who might say I I, I want to write a new theme, you know. You know, just a little little quick story when I was over after working at Universal with Glenn and he left Universal went to Fox and I went to, he wanted me to go to Fox to do Fall Guy with him and and so I had to leave Night Rider actually. I had, I did the 12 episodes and then I couldn't do any more because he wanted me over at the 20th Century Fox. And about a year later, I went back to Universal to say hello to my friend in the library, Erwin Costell, and he said, you know, there's a rumor going around that, that Don Peake is going to write a new theme for Knight Rider. And I said, really? So I said, he said, I thought you might like to know. So I said, yeah, thanks. So I picked up the phone right there in the music library and called Glenn Fox, and I said to Glenn, there's a talk here about they want to replace the Knight Rider theme with, you know, Don Peake wants to write a new one. And and Glenn said, over my dead body. <laughs> and That's he said, him. I'll call the network. So he called the network. And the next thing I knew, about two days later, I, I got a call from my friend in the library there. And he said, guess what, Stu? He says, what? He said, there ain't going to be no new Knight Rider theme. <laughs> He said so the network came down and said, you changed that theme, you better drop, you would drop in the show. That's right. <laughs> no, seriously. He said that was, Erwin Costler was the name of the uh, librarian. He said, uh, and he he was the kind of guy who knew everything that was going on in the studio musically, everything. <laughs> he had his ear on everybody's wall. He was like the fly on the wall in everybody's office. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, he said the network came in uh, and said, told Harry Garfield, no way. He says, you change the theme, you lose the show. 
Amen. So, Stu? Yeah, well, I see agree. now that in that case it <laughs> in that case it helped that Glenn Lawson's name was on it. That's right. Because yeah, if I mean... Glenn Lawson's name wasn't <laughs> on that, he might have said, Well, you know, what the hell if they want to change it, they want to change it. But this was an insult to him. <laughs> he had his name on it. And, and, so and that Stu. case it worked out good. <laughs> or we Stu, would have had a new, sure. new new Don Peak theme. Yeah. <laughs> it would not have been the same without your theme, my friend. And, uh, well, thank you. You're, thank you're you theme. very much. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're all this compliment and everything else is going to go to my head. No, I mean it. I mean it 100%. And uh, if you listen to the rest of our podcast, believe me, we're going to talk about that a lot, that the theme really had a lot to do with its success. And it really, it is Night Rider. Jimmy, you want to tell Stu what you told me about when you and your wife want to drive fast? What do you do? Well... It's it's when we want to drive fast, or the 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 trash truck is coming to pick up the garbage at the end of the street, and somebody has to like run out and throw on like a robe and pull it out to the end. Uh, the other person will like something's got to be done quick. Whenever something has to be done quick in North Carolina. Yes, it builds. It builds sometimes. Well, if it was Night Rider, every time you would get the trash there just in time. Like 90% of the time, it works every time. Thank you, Stu, for joining us. We love the theme. We think it should be on every Night Rider property, period. And I don't think a Night Rider property can be successful without that theme. Thank you for your well, time. Well, thank sir. you. Thank you for your. Thank you for your lovely comments and thank you for uh talking to me and putting up with my all my side side thoughts and everything my god we no, love it, it. it was we our love pleasure it, it mean a true honor and we're back that was a fun interview jimmy we did with the two. Oh, it was fantastic he's a resource like a link to the past i, I could have went like five or six hours with this guy just well, listening we to went about two hours believe it or not folks and if you want to hear more about Stu phillips work in television music and composing of course we want to keep it to night writer here but he spoke to us for another hour on book guys show which eventually will be available at starship that's starship com, as well as any podcast index compatible podcast player and we we talked to him there about all his other work in uh, film and television now, Nick, uh, if you, you heard the interview, we talked a little bit about that 2008 theme song and how I had a video pulled from a YouTube channel because I was comparing how they used basically a ripoff of a riff from, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit instead of using Stu's original melody, you yeah. know, or the original opera. Nah, Stu says it's not from the opera. Come on. <laughs> and what did you think of the 2008 series theme song, Nick? I liked the way it started. Uh, and about halfway through, it falls apart. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, let, let me let me hear it. Halfway through, it's about something like that. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to look at it this way. Night Rider fans, there's a lot of diehard Night Rider fans that don't want anything changed at all. They want everything to be the same, especially with regards to a theatrical movie. So you got to keep a little bit of an open mind. To some of these things if, if you want to be fair you know of course they use the most familiar beats because everyone who knows Knight Rider knows what that sounds like so it's going to hook you in to the show 
just like back when you're a little kid, you hear those first two few bars of Night Rider, you knew Night Rider was on coming from the TV screen. Even if you were in the, in the next room, I mean, the opening bars are unmistakable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The whole melody. I mean, I, I, Stu was, uh, I think the first time he ever heard that people danced to it. I mean, he, he was like, what? People were dancing. I remember like it was mid or late nineties. Yeah. There was like six minute dance mixes and people were like cheering. Yeah. They're dancing. You know, great. Uh, what do you think of our theme? <laughs> oh, now uh, folks at home, I want you to know that uh, Nick has been listening to some draft themes not that we haven't we don't have our final theme yet which you will have listened to at the beginning of the show but what are your thoughts and any i don't know criticisms we're all open <laughs> i'm not a musician expert so i can't really give you a educated criticism i would just say i like the guitars i like the beats i think beats are important i would probably speed it up a little bit yeah well see one one thing we had to do we had to shorten it because it's a podcast and mm-hmm. uh that's another thing I'm working on, shortening our book guys uh, theme song. It's a little bit too long. So we wanted to keep it around 30 seconds just not to lose people's attention. So we never uh, got to the point where uh, in the original Stu Phillips, that sequence, the main theme, the main uh, melody in the next, you know, couple of bars, he actually doubles the speed on it. So it goes, and you get that feeling of speed, right? So yeah, you, you don't get it if you only play the first half right so i'm I'm thinking maybe we're just gonna uh fudge it a bit and just uh literally select all and speed it up 10 percent, something like that and i know mr jeff smith has got some car noises in it maybe we'll add in some theremin you know we'll work it out we'll work it out (laughs) well you know keep it simple don't make it too complicated i I loved also the guitar from the 2008 theme and i thought oh this is gonna be awesome this is going to be great. And then it went, Arrgh. like, seriously, come on. What were they thinking? Ugh, I hate when they do that. I mean, even Battlestar Galactica, as I told, again, I'm going off topic, but uh, like I told Stu, the one time I cheered, literally cheered while watching the new Battlestar Galactica was the one fight, uh, fight scene where they actually played his original theme. I was like, yeah. And I think that show did pretty well, but I think it would have done a lot better if they played the original theme. Anyways, let's let's move on. We're almost at the end here of the uh, production, and then we'll we'll pick uh, Nick's brain a bit, and we'll just get through this narrative here, as well as the classic series, which I think Nick is that your favorite of all of them. I'm guessing it is, maybe. Of course, of course, original. <laughs> Jimmy, you classic. I got to go with the classic, Paul. I tell you. It's just too ingrained. And you're right. 80s was like the guitar era, you know, whether it was Poison or Eddie Van Halen, uh, Ingve Malmsteen, you know, but it just kind of fizzled out. Also, the size of keyboards. Right. (laughs) And I was surprised, guys, to find out that the Knight Rider theme song was played by like four dudes live. You know, I, I thought it was sequenced, honestly. And it was literally like, Stu, why, how'd you come up with that melody? Well, I only had one hand free, so it had to be, all the keys had to be close to each other. It's like, dun, 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 dun. I was like, wow. And if I had my MIDI keyboard set up, I can actually play it, but for some reason my MIDI's not working today. Yeah, Jimmy, if you're going to stick around, guys, we're, we are going to, at some point, going to go through the entire classic and all of the other media. And Jimmy, I want you especially to watch with me 
the short-lived Team Knight Rider. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And believe me, it's not going to change your favorite favorite Knight Rider series at all. Power Rangers with, with, with uh, Knight Industries vehicles. <laughs> I think some... I'm trying not to swear on this series. We're trying to keep it family-friendly. Uh, but some person, nice person, decided that, hey, if one guy with one car was such a hit in the 80s, why don't we do, like, five dudes and dudettes with five cars? It'd be great. And, All well, talking at once. Yeah, sure. They don't get it. They really don't get the whole Lone Ranger appeal. Anyways, they had three straight-to-TV movies. Most of them were garbage. There were some good ideas in some of them that never really got fleshed out. This is my opinion. Nick, chime in. If you're like, oh, no, I like this one, let me know. But sure. <laughs> I think they were rubbish. And then we had the reboot, which had a lot of great ideas in it. And had again, had it been one person, I, I, hey, Michael Knight could have been Michelle Knight. I don't care. Give me Michelle Knight and that transforming car going a, a, around the country, around the world. I'm good with that. But they made it again. They made it Team Knight Rider 2. And you can see it right off the bat, Team Knight Rider 2. They showed you a dusty, covered, beat-up, I believe there was a Trans Am in the first episode, full of dust and whatever. And they were too. Yeah, they ruined it. I mean... They were, they were just Easter eggs in, in Charles Graven's garage. <laughs> One was actually not even a real Trans Am. It was a 118-scale uh, Joyride kit model that was <laughs> uh, just puzzled into the garage. That's hilarious. Oh, and what actually looks good with the turbo cast rims and all that, that's a little tiny toy model. And, you know, with all with all the transforming power, they never once transformed the Ford into the... Did they ever transform it into the T-top? The no. <laughs> and again, a fail. But they didn't do it because NBC didn't want... They wanted to make Knight Rider their own thing and eliminate Glenn's influence as much as they could from their version of the series. Yeah, what, what does that guy know, anyways, the whole creator of Knight Rider, right? We yeah, know right. better. We're an NBC. We're going to make Team Knight Rider. Uh, there was also a spinoff called Code of Vengeance, which we might cover later. Ugh. Uh, it spanned off from a forgettable character in a single forgettable Knight Snake. Rider episode. <laughs> Snake, yeah. yeah. But we definitely have to dig up the ghost that is Team Knight Rider. Although not a crossover, we're going to cover this one too, Jimmy, just because... There was a two-part episode of Different Strokes, and it took place on the set of Knight Rider. Yes, it was called Hooray for Hollywood. That's right. And again, Gary Coleman and Shavar Ross sneaked onto the set of Knight Rider and almost got killed. That's basically the synopsis there. And, and uh, David never refers to himself as David Hasselhoff or Michael Knight. He just They just call him Knight Rider, which is really weird. I know. Well, they probably, uh, first of all, they now probably... Now he's just the Hoff. The Hoff, yeah. But yeah. They probably couldn't say the word Michael Knight or David Hasselhoff. They might have to pay him more. <laughs> ah, that was always oh, weird man. to me. They were on the Universal back lot, so <laughs> they didn't have Universal's permission. And we're going to cover everything. We're going to cover everything, Nick. Uh, we're going to sure. cover it all in chronological order. And that's why we're starting um, the next episode next time. Let me, let me do it like the 24 voice. Next time on Darth Vader's Bathroom. We'll be discussing the very first episode of Knight Rider titled A Knight in Shining Armor, part one of the two-part series opener. Man, I remember watching that live, and it was only because, you know, Dad had put it on the TV. We didn't have TVs in our pockets. I'm looking forward to that. Nick, you're welcome to join us for any episode. Uh, I think the idea is we're either going to watch it fresh or watch it live together somehow. 
or having watched in the last, you know, recently before we record. And we'll talk about all the goodness in that episode. And we'll release that in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to try to keep this podcast weekly. So we're going to get a two or three in the can before we release. And that way, mm-hmm. uh, if we have a wedding or a bar mitzvah or something to go to, we'll be able to still keep releasing weekly. And you can learn more about what's happening over at StarshipElvis.com. And Nick, do you have any other commentary or any interesting stories about the pre-production of Knight Rider before we head out? The pre-production of Knight Rider. Um, well, it's like I mentioned before, there was two different noses used throughout the pilot episode, which when it went to syndication became Knight of the Phoenix. Originally, it was just a Knight Rider two-hour television movie. The name Knight Rider actually came from Glenn's wife. She came up with the idea when he was writing the script in Hawaii. Interesting thing about the cars is that you see some of these pre-production photos floating around, these black and white pictures. And I, I get this question all the time, like, why is there a round steering wheel inside and the outside, you know, you've got Devin in a suit and all that? Well, it's because one car was specifically done for the nose work. And the other car was being worked on by Michael Chaffee, where they were putting in the dash and stuff. So when they took those pre-production photos, they didn't have a complete car at the time, especially like the uh, the TV guide cover. They used the other car with the dash in it. So there was two different uh, hero cars at the time. And the way you can tell the difference between the two noses is one, the very first nose for Kit was created by a gentleman named John Ward. And his nose is what you see when Michael and Kit meet for the first time in the garage with that really narrow red scanner light and uh, an extended piece on the hood. And then when Chaffee came in and redesigned that nose, you get the wider, the the more uh, prominent scanner that was lower down in the grill instead of being up higher near the, uh, the, the hood. The reason the nose was changed is because Glenn wanted to see the scanner bar a lot more prominent on screen, especially out in uh, sunlight, you know, where the sunlight would wash out, the shadows would wash out uh, lights and stuff like that. So they made the, the little shelf so that the red light would, would reflect, you know, off the rest of the black glossy paint and, and emphasize the scanner light. Really cool. Really cool. Now, Nick, yeah. before we go... And I know folks at home, Nick is going to be joining us on the book, guys, for uh, Season 8, Episode 1, Night Rider. He's going to talk all about his book. But just give us, uh, for this podcast, tell us a little bit about your book. I'm waiting for it in the mail. I didn't even know it existed. And now I'm super excited to get it in the mail. I think it's going to be, uh, rather than me staring at this screen here in my notes, I'm going to be just flipping. You're going to hear lots of pages flipping. I'm going to be using it all the time uh, during uh, DVB. We'll call it for short. Tell us a bit about your book. The Knight Rider Companion. You can find it on Amazon, eBay, or at uh, www.nightridercompanion.com, which is my official website. We only have non-mint copies in stock because all the mint copies have been sold out. It was published in 2008. It is a 680-page guidebook to the original mythology of Knight Rider, which means you will find the uh, classic series up until Knight Rider 2000. I don't cover the spinoffs. I don't cover the new Knight Rider stuff. I basically covered everything that spotlighted Glenn Larson's version of Knight Rider and his intent for the series. It has original illustrations. It has a Q&A. 
with Glenn Larson, Stu Phillips, Don Peake, Michael Chaffee. That's got a forward by Robert Foster, who was the executive producer of Knight Rider after R.A. Sinidar passed away. It's got a forward by Glenn, and it has original artwork. It has an episode guide, and it has, at the time, the world's first autograph guide. So if you collect Knight Rider autographs, you'll be able to see the real deal signatures and avoid the fakes out there. Sweet. <laughs> and it's full color, 680 pages. Can't wait to receive my copy in the mail, my friend. And we are going to enjoy that. And after I've had a time to uh, leaf through it, we're going to speak on book, guys. And thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll come back for as no many of these episodes of uh, DVB as you wish, sir. Oh, yeah. And uh, you I'm too, always... Jimmy. Me and Jimmy are learning a lot here about Knight Rider. I spent it's a, a lifetime about it. It's almost like going back in time and you're a kid again. And all the things you wanted to know, you're finding out now. And I think it's a, it's just a really cool opportunity to share that with other people with the same, you know, mind. And, and Nick, maybe next time you come on, we'll talk a bit about the upcoming, I know it's happened many times, but the quote upcoming movie, uh, the script writer has uh, reached out. We reached out to them. They reached out to us. And uh, unfortunately he's well, not curious because I reached out to him too. And he sort of reached out to me. Yeah, well, he he's under NDA, and I think he's pretty much not able to talk too much about Knight Rider in a public forum right now, and he'd rather yeah. not lose his job before he, you know the the movie is well into pre production. And I hope that it's I I did tweet him, it better be one man and one car, or you you're on the wrong foot already. Uh, I uh, I've seen this before. I'll just say that I've seen this whole song and dance before i know how it ends up uh i don't know the gentleman personally but um i hope he knows and respects what he's getting into because you're talking about a brand that has worldwide recognition and certain levels of expectations that need to be there in order for it to be knight rider and not just be knight rider and name let, let me give you my concept now, i'm not a script writer but here it is. If you want to reboot it right now, you want to get it going. Michael Knight, Mike Knight, Kit 2000, Kit 3000. There's no more Kit Cave. There's no more Devon. There's no more Flag. They meet up. Hey, Dad, what's up? You can even make Michael Knight. You can make uh, the Hoffs part a very you know minimal one. But it's just them. That's it. And you know you can make a whole episode out of them trying to get one of the one of the cars fixed. But it's just man it's just mike knight and his transforming car they no longer have support if there's an issue with the car it's a big issue because there's no one to fix it they have to hunt down someone to fix it but it's basically lone ranger and the only help he has is maybe to call his dad and get the other knight car to fix the other car and they're both under the under the hood but basically lone ranger the two of them you know uh, with, with uh, of course, the elder Michael Knight only being a support role, showing up, you know, bringing the giant Bonnie wrench. And uh, without any help, without any help, they have to keep going and being hunted down by some evil force. <laughs> I know, it's got to go back to Lone Ranger. I have my own idea of how I would have continued the new Knight Rider series had it gone to season two. Oh, let, let us know. Would you let us know? <laughs> oh, we'd be here all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll do it another time. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Nick Nugent, the author of KR Companion, Sir Jimmy Podcast, 
basically podcast god. He's been on so many podcasts, I can't even name them all right now. And uh, you know, I'm worldwide, and I'm just thankful <laughs> that Nick uh, spent this time with us through all the pre-production and everything. I mean, my pleasure. This is thank you. We'll see you next week, same night time, same night channel. <laughs> that just came out. I don't know. <laughs>